fast asleep. We're so happy to have you here for another engaging classic story. Actually, two stories again this week. So, 1982 was an especially strong year for today's author. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature that year. It's Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He began as a journalist after studying law at Universidad Nacional in Colombia. He spent all of his spare time, doesn't sound like he had a lot, reading fiction. And he became inspired and excited to try it himself. He shied away from traditional literature, choosing instead a style he credits his grandmother's storytelling. Credits it too, her storytelling. You see, she would take extraordinary events and place them into otherwise ordinary life situations. And later, this all became known as magic realism. So, with novels, short stories, even screenplays, to his credit, Garcia Marquez, and I quote, casts a lengthy shadow in Colombia, all of South America, and the United States. And this is according to literary critic Robert Sims. And just this year, he surpassed Miguel de Cervantes as the most translated Spanish language writer. His A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings is very popular for us in Fast Asleep, episode 163. But, 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 listen to that later. Today, we bring you two more of his short stories, and they both feature roses. We start with the spirit of a young boy who's been gone for 40 years after a tragic accident. His childhood friend returns to his abandoned home and fills his days with, uh, let's just say, distractions and maybe even some interactions. Tuck in, everybody, for our first tale, our version of Someone Has Touched These Roses. Since it is Sunday and it has stopped raining, I think I will bring a bouquet of roses to my grave. Red and white roses, the ones she grows to make altars and crowns. The gloomy, eerie weather of the morning had reminded me of the hill where the townspeople abandoned their dead. Oh, it is a bare place, without trees, 
swept clean except for the few fortunate crumbs that return once the wind is past. Now that it has stopped raining, the midday sun should have dried the path up the hill, making it passable. The sun might now shine on the tomb where my childhood body rests in the back, now confused, crumbling between snails and roots. She is kneeling in front of her saints. She has remained completely engrossed in her prayers since I stopped moving in the room. After having failed in my first attempt to reach the altar and grab the most flush and fresh roses. Yeah, maybe today I would have been able to do it, but the lantern flickered and she recovered from the trance, raised her head and looked towards the corner of the room where the chair stood. She must have thought, it's the wind again because something did rustle next to the altar. The room undulated for a moment, as if the weight of stagnant memories from so long ago had been lifted. I realized then that I must wait for another opportunity to take the roses. She was fully alert, looking at the chair, she would have been able to feel the whisper of my hands next to her face. Now I must wait until, in a moment, she leaves this room and goes to the neighboring bedroom to take the measured and invariable Sunday siesta. It is possible that then I can leave with the roses so I can come back before she returns to this room and stays watching the chair. Oh, last Sunday was harder. I had to wait almost two hours until she fell into a trance. She looked restless, worried, as if she were tormented by the certainty that suddenly her loneliness in the house had become less intense. She paced the room many times with the bouquet of roses before abandoning it at the altar. And then she went out to the passageway, looked back inside, and made her way to the neighboring bedroom. I knew that she was looking at the lantern. And after, when she passed by the door once again and I saw her in the brightness of the corridor with her dark sweater and pink stockings. She, she looked to me as if she were still the same girl who 40 years ago leaned over my bed in this very same room and said, Now that they have propped open your eyelids, your eyes are shiny and hard. She was the same, as if no time had passed since that remote afternoon in August when the women brought her to the room, showed her the body, and told her, cry, he was like a brother to you. 
she leaned against the wall, crying, obeying, still soaked from the rain. For the past three or four Sundays, I have been trying to reach the roses, but she has remained vigilant in front of the altar. She watches over them with an unfamiliar, startling diligence that never before in her twenty years in this house has she experienced. Last Sunday, when she went to look for the lantern, I managed to put together a bouquet of the best roses. In no other moment had I been so close to achieving my goal, but when I was about to return to my chair, I, I once again heard footsteps in the passageway. I quickly put the roses back in their place on the altar, and then I saw her up here in the doorframe with the lantern raised. She was wearing her dark sweater and pink stockings, but her face glowed with a revelation. In that moment, she did not look like the woman who for 20 years grew roses in the orchard instead. She looked like the same girl from that August afternoon that was brought to the neighboring bedroom to change her clothes. And now, returned with a lantern, fat and old, eh, 40 years later. My shoes still have a hard crust of mud from that afternoon, despite drying for 20 years next to a flameless fireplace. One day, I went to look for them. Now, this was after they closed the doors, took down the bread and bouquet of aloe vera from the threshold, and moved out the furniture, all the furniture, except the corner chair that has been a place for me to rest all this time. Well, I knew my shoes had been put to dry and that they were simply forgotten when they abandoned the house. So I went to look for them. She returned many years later. So much time had passed that the musky scent of the room had mixed with the smell of dust and the dry, tiny reek of insects. I was alone in the house, sitting in the corner, waiting. I had learned how to distinguish the murmur of the decomposing wood from the flutter of the air, just turning old in the closed bedrooms. Then she arrived. She had stopped at the door with a suitcase in her hand, a green hat, and the same cotton sweater that she has not taken off since. She was still a girl. She'd not begun to get fat, nor did her ankles bulge beneath her stockings like they did now. I was covered in dust and cobwebs when she opened the door, and somewhere in the room, the cricket that had been singing for 20 years fell silent. 
But despite this, despite the cobwebs and dust, the sudden silence of the cricket, and the old age of the newcomer, I recognized in her the same girl who, that stormy August afternoon, came with me to knock down nests in the stable. As she stood in the doorway with her suitcase in hand and her green hat, it seemed as if suddenly she were about to yell to say the same thing that she had when when she found me, face up, on the grass, by the stable, still clinging to the rung of the broken ladder. When she opened the door completely, the hinges creaked, and the thin dust of the roof slid down in gusts, as if someone had begun to hammer the ridge of the roof. So she wavered in and out of clarity in the doorframe. Then, leaning half of her body into the room, in the tone of someone calling to a sleeping person, she said, Boy! Boy! I remained still in the seat, rigid, with my feet stretched out. I thought that, well, she came only to see the room, but she went on to live in the house. She aired out the room. It was as if she opened her suitcase and from it surged a familiar musk smell. The others brought her furniture and clothing and trunks. She alone had taken the smells of the room with her. Twenty years later, she brought them all back, hung them up in their places, and rebuilt the little altar exactly the same as before. Simply her presence was enough to restore what the restless rigor of time had destroyed. Since that day, she eats and sleeps in the adjacent room, but she spends her days in this room, speaking in silence with the saints. In the afternoon, she sits in the rocking chair next to the door in men's clothes. She helps those who come to buy flowers. She always rocks as she mends. And when someone comes for a bouquet of roses, she puts the coin in the corner of the handkerchief that she keeps tied at her waist. Without fail, she says, Take the ones on the right. Those on the left are for the saints. For twenty years, she has sat in that chair, mending her things, rocking, looking at the other chair. It is as if she no longer takes care of the boy with whom she shared her childhood afternoons. Instead, she cares for the disabled grandson that is here and has been sitting in the corner since the grandmother was five years old. It is possible 
that now, when she once again begins to nod off, I can get closer to the roses if I manage to do it. I will go to the hill and put them over my tomb. Then I will return to my chair to wait for the day when she no longer comes to this room and the noises in the neighboring rooms cease. On this day, oh, there will be a transformation. I will have to leave the house once again to tell someone that the woman with the roses, the one that lives alone in the ruined house, needs four men to bring her to the hill. Then, once and for all, I will be alone in the room. But in exchange, she will be satisfied. On this day, she will learn that it was not an invisible wind that touched the roses on her altar every Sunday. Please stay with us for another rose story from Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's coming up right after this. now, our second tale. Here is a granddaughter and her very perceptive blind grandmother. Now there's a mild warning with this story, and I do mean mild, but the granddaughter does become a bit impatient with grandma, and she uses a word we usually stay away from. Tuck in, everybody. For Artificial Roses by Gabriel Garcia Marquez.
day, in the half-light of dawn, Mina puts on the sleeveless dress that she had hung next to her bed the night before and rummaged through her trunk for her fake sleeves. Then she searched for them on the nails in the wall and behind the door, trying not to make a sound so as not to wake her blind grandmother who slept in the same room. When her eyes adjusted to the darkness, she realized that her grandmother had gotten up. So she went to the kitchen to ask her about the sleeves. Oh, they're in the bathroom, said the blind woman. I washed them yesterday afternoon. There they were, hanging from a wire, held on by two clothespins. They were still damp. Mina returned to the kitchen and laid out the sleeves on the stones of the stove. In front of her, the blind woman stirred the coffee, her dead pupils fixed on the ledge of bricks in the corridor where there was a row of medicinal herbs. Don't pick up my things again, Mina said. These days, you can't count on the sun. The blind woman turned her face towards the voice. I had forgotten that it was the first Friday of the month, she said. After inhaling deeply to see if the coffee was done, she took the pot off the burner. Oh, put a piece of paper underneath them because these stones are dirty, she said. Mina rubbed her index finger against the stones of the stove. There was a crust of soot that would not dirty the sleeves, if they did not rub directly against it. If they get dirty, you're the one to blame, she said. The blind woman had gotten herself a cup of coffee. You're angry, she said, rolling a chair towards the corridor. It's sacrilegious to receive the Holy Communion when you're angry. She sat to drink her coffee in front of the roses on the patio. When the third stroke for mass told, Mina took her sleeves from the stove. (sighs) They were still damp, but she put them on. Father Angel would not give her the communion if she had bare shoulders. She did not wash her face. With a towel, she wiped off what was left of her blush, grabbed the book of prayers and her silk scarf from her room and left. A quarter of an hour later, she was back. You're going to get there after the gospel, the blind woman said, sitting in front of her roses on the patio. Mina went directly to the outhouse. I can't go to mass, she said. My sleeves are wet and none of my clothes are ironed. She felt herself being followed by a clairvoyant stare. It's first Friday, and you aren't going to Mass, the blind woman remarked. On her way back from the outhouse, Mina got a cup of coffee and sat against the lime door jam near the blind woman. But she could not drink her coffee. 
It's your fault, she murmured, with muffled resentment, feeling like she was drowning in tears. You're crying, the blind woman exclaimed. She put the watering pot down next to the oregano plants and left the patio, repeating, You're crying. Mina put her cup on the floor before standing up. I'm crying out of anger, she said. And as she passed her grandmother, she added, You have to confess your sins because you made me miss First Friday Communion. The blind woman stayed still, waiting for Mina to close the door of the bedroom. Then she walked to the end of the corridor. She leaned over, feeling her way until she found the intact cup on the floor. As she poured the coffee back into the clay pot, she went on to say, God knows my conscience is clear. Mina's mother came out of her bedroom. Who are you talking to? she asked. Oh, no one, said the blind woman. I already told you. I'm going crazy. Shut away in her room, Mina unbuttoned her bodice and took out three little keys that she wore held together on a safety pin. With one of the keys, she opened the lower drawer of the dresser and took out a miniature wooden chest. She opened it with the next key. Inside was a packet of letters on colored paper, bundled together by an elastic band. She put them beneath her bodice, put the little trunk in its place, and once again locked the drawer. Then she went to the outhouse and threw the letters to the bottom of the pit. I thought you were in mass, said the mother. Oh, she couldn't go, the blind woman interjected. I forgot that it was first Friday. I washed her sleeves yesterday afternoon. They're still damp, muttered Mina. Oh, you've had to work a lot these days, said the blind woman. On Easter, I have to deliver 150 dozen roses, Mina replied. The sun came out early that day. Before seven, Mina set up her artificial rose workshop in her room. A basket full of petals and wire, a crate of elastic paper, two pairs of scissors, a spool of thread, and a jar of glue. A moment later, Trinidad arrived with a cardboard box under her arm to ask her why she had not gone to mass. I didn't have sleeves, said Mina. Anyone would have been able to lend you some, said Trinidad. She pulled over a chair to sit next to the basket of petals. It made me late, said Mina. She finished a rose. Afterwards, she pulled the basket towards her to curl the loose petals with scissors. Trinidad put her cardboard box on the floor and joined in the work. Mina noticed the box. Did you buy shoes? she asked. They're dead mice, said Trinidad. 
because Trinidad was an expert petal curler. Mina devoted herself to making wire stems covered in green paper. They worked in silence, without noticing how the sun moved through the room, decorated with idyllic paintings and familiar photographs. When she finished the stems, Mina turned back to Trinidad with a blank expression, her mind elsewhere. Trinidad curled petals with admirable preciseness, barely moving the tips of her fingers, her legs tightly pressed together. Mina noticed she was wearing men's shoes. Trinidad avoided the glance and, without lifting her head ever so slightly, pulled her legs back and interrupted their work. What happened? she asked. Mina leaned towards her. He's gone, she said. Trinidad dropped the scissors in her lap. No! He left, Mina repeated. Trinidad looked at her without blinking. A vertical wrinkle marked her furrowed brow. And now what? she asked. Mina responded without a tremor in her voice. Now? Nothing. Trinidad left before ten. Free from the weight of her secret, Mina took a moment to throw the dead mice into the outhouse. The blind woman was pruning the rose bed. I bet you don't know what I have in this box, Mina said to her as she passed. She shook the box. The blind woman listened closely. Move it again, she said. Mina repeated the motion. After listening for a third time with her index finger pressed to her earlobe, the blind woman still could not identify the objects. They're the mice that fell in the church's trap last night, said Mina. Returning, she passed by the blind woman without speaking, but... The blind woman followed her. When she got to the room, Mina was alone, next to the closed window, finishing the artificial roses. Mina, said the blind woman, if, if you want to be happy, don't count on strangers. Mina looked at her without speaking. The blind woman took the seat in front of her and tried to join in the work, but Mina stopped her. Oh, well, you're on edge, said the blind woman. It's your fault, said Mina. Why didn't you go to Mass? Well, you know better than anyone. If it had been because of the sleeves, you wouldn't have even left the house said the blind woman. On your way there, someone was waiting for you and told you something you did not want to hear. Mina passed her hands in front of her grandmother's eyes 
as if she were wiping an invisible glass pane. You are psychic, she said. You have gone to the outhouse twice this morning, said the blind woman. You never go more than once. Nina continued to make roses. Would you be willing to show me what you keep in the dresser drawer? The blind woman asked. Without hurrying, Nina stuck the rose in the window frame, took the three keys out from beneath her bodice, and put them in the blind woman's hand. She closed the woman's fingers around them. Go see it with your own eyes, she said. Her grandmother examined the little keys with the tips of her fingers. My eyes cannot see the bottom of the outhouse. Nina lifted her head and had the strange feeling that the blind woman knew that she was watching her. Throw yourself to the bottom of the outhouse if my things interest you so much, she said. The blind woman ignored the comment. You always write in bed until dawn, she said. You yourself turn off the lights, Nina said. And immediately after, you turn on the small lantern said the blind woman. By your breathing, I can tell what you are writing. Mina made an effort not to move. Okay, she said without raising her head. And suppose that is what happens. What's so strange about it? Nothing, responded the blind woman, only that it made you miss First Friday Communion. Nina gathered the spool of thread, the scissors, and a fistful of stems and unfinished roses with both hands. She put everything in the basket and confronted the blind woman. So, you want me to tell you what I went to do in the outhouse? She asked. Two remained in suspense until Mina responded to her own question. I went to shit. Her grandmother threw the three little keys into the basket. It would be a good excuse, she murmured, making her way to the kitchen. You would have convinced me if... This weren't the first time in your life that I've heard you swear. Mina's mother was coming through the corridor in the opposite direction, loaded down with thorny stems. What's going on? she asked. Oh, I'm crazy, said the blind woman. But as far as I can tell, they won't send me to the madhouse until I start to throw stones. Good night.